All right, well, you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we are going to dig into this next section. Hey, we're past the super controversial part. We'll get to more. We got it like a small break, and then we'll get to more controversial things. Uh, but we, this morning, are going to begin a really important passage on unity. And, uh, you know, this is a church, just to remind you, this Corinthian church, uh, this, this is a church that Paul loved. He went into a sinful city, preached the gospel, and, and people become Christians, they get saved, and God is doing this amazing work in a, in a city that is desperately needs the gospel. And so Paul loved this church. Now, this church had lots of challenges and difficulties. They were struggling with figuring out, oh, how do I make decisions about meat sacrifice to idols? And, and they're thinking about all these different things about how do they live in their culture in a way that honors God. But one of the things that we see in the Corinthian church is that they had tons of conflict. And one of the things that kind of seems interesting as you read through the conflicts in the Corinthian church is that it doesn't seem like it stems from the leaders. It seems like people gathering around in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, it's talking about their conflicts and their difficulties, and somebody's saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas. And yet we know that these leaders that they were lining up under were not the ones that were creating the division. And yet people are having these, this division going on, and it's one of the things throughout the Corinthian letters that Paul is addressing. Um, he's addressing division. He's addressing sin and how the church should be involved in dealing with that sin that's going on in the church. And what's interesting is Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and you see the presence of that. By the time he gets to 2 Corinthians, he spends the last three chapters of the book defending himself. So as he starts to address the difficulty and the conflict, it's like, it's like Satan goes back to work and it just continues going in the church. And it's really cool to just see Paul's love for this church. And there are some really important things for us to learn here. Uh, this church accomplished great things, but it was under attack by Satan, which often when Satan is attacking, that's a positive thing. Have you ever thought about in your family when you're working on things, like I've, I've seen couples that will say, oh man, we're having struggles, we're having conflicts, and then they'll, they'll, go, to, they'll go to premarital counseling or they'll go to marriage counseling or whenever uh, we've done uh, marriage Bible studies, all the couples who get involved in this marriage Bible study, after the first or second week, they say, we fought a lot more this last week since our last Bible study. Or in your family when you say, okay, we need to work on these things. And as you buckle down to try to do the things that God would have you do, often things get worse. I've talked to people about the importance of reading the Bible regularly. And I've had them come back and say, I developed a plan, I made a commitment to do it, and everything in my life is going wrong. Um, you want to know something? That's because Satan doesn't want you on the right track. And so when you're doing things and things go wrong and things get difficult, it's time to take a step back and say, okay, am I doing the things that God has called me to do? And if I am doing what I know is the right thing, keep doing it and don't give up. And so that's what's happening here in this church is Paul is challenging them and he is encouraging them. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He writes, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from, this, from a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. And it's interesting because Paul's talking there about a false doctrine, like he's going to talk about them building, a, uh, buying into a different gospel. But then he goes on and he's actually in this context defending himself. Because as these false teachers come in, they are actually trying, trying to stir up division against Paul. And the thing for all of us in your marriage, in your family, with your neighbors, in church, the things that helps us stay on track is this, a simple, pure devotion to Christ. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Uh, when it comes to division, 
Um, our passage is actually dealing with the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna take the, the beginning of that, we're gonna read the whole, the whole section, but we're gonna focus on the first few verses. And one of the things that we find out is that God actually has a purpose in divisions. Like when I read, when I read this passage, I'm like, wait, what? Well, you'll see that when we get there. But let me just tell you this. Did you know that when it comes to relationships with people, you cannot pray the way Jesus taught people to pray and have divisions that Satan wants in the church? Those things are incompatible. Throughout the Bible, unity, love in the body of Christ is something that you cannot get away from. The most basic things in Scripture do not allow us to hate one another. Uh, when you think about um, uh, the Lord's Prayer, right? The prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray. It says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. Um, Jesus said this in Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive anything any, against anyone so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive your trespasses. You know, it's interesting uh, in this whole thing of forgiveness. Sometimes we forgive people, and, and there, is a, there is an important part in forgiveness of, having, uh, of owning things, of repenting, of making things right. But I find it interesting that Jesus here in Mark says, forgive anything you have against anyone so God will forgive you. Part of our recognition of our need for, give, for forgiveness impacts the way we view others. So you can't pray the way God tells us to pray and have division. Now that's an, uh, this is an issue, and we're gonna look at what happened in the church, where this division came from, um, but this is an issue that touches every person. Um, have you ever had conflict with strangers? Somewhere somebody's rude, somebody's a jerk to you? Uh, have you ever had conflict while you were driving on the road? Somebody was rude to you and pulled, cut you off or um, gave you some sign language for some reason? Uh, what about neighbors? Have you ever seen a neighborhood conflict? So <laughs> when we moved into our neighborhood... Uh, we, we talked to a police officer that was in, in there, and he was just saying, you know, do you realize you have some neighbors that have called the police on each other 14 times? And it was like in no time we were very clear on what this conflict was about. And uh, it was one of the really cool things for us to think about, okay, as believers, how do we love both folks that are fighting with each other? Um, what about family? Never have struggles with your family. Anybody have, for anybody, is Thanksgiving or Christmas ever a challenging, hard uh, holiday where you're just thinking, oh man, I don't want to go there. This is going to be challenging or difficult. Or uh, parents, anybody ever, ever have conflict with their kids? Uh, what about siblings? Anybody have any siblings that they struggle with? Okay, this is the last one. This is where we never have any issues, and that is the church. Have you ever struggled with anybody in the church? You know, I've been sitting down and talking with people and just had, had someone go over, hey, let me give you the history of the ministry here. And they'll tell me stories about how this was going really well and then this really grew. And then there was this huge conflict and the ministry just shut down. Or so we've, seen, we've all seen and experienced and felt those things. And this is one thing that I would say as we are about to jump in here Satan wants conflict. He wants conflict in your life everywhere. He wants conflict between you and other people. And part of the reason for that, and, and we talked about this in the last few weeks, Satan wants you to have a bad relationship with God. And so that's what Adam and Eve happened in the garden, where Satan was saying, God's unreasonable. Don't listen to God. Don't obey God. And so uh, Satan's trying to set people against God himself. But if Satan can't set you against God himself. He wants to set you against another person. And why is that? It's because people are made in God's image 
And when we attack other people, God takes that personally. If you want discipline in your life, then just fail to think about people, your brothers and sisters and all these really bad people that have done really mean things to you. Fail to think about them the way God tells us to think about them. And that will put you at enmity with the Lord. And so uh, these are things that we need to address and that we need to think about. And so um, one of the things for us to remember too is are we surprised when there are difficulties and challenges and conflicts in church? <laughs> no, right? Have you, have you ever heard the, uh, the argument, I don't wanna go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there? Well, hey, that's awesome that there are hypocrites in church. If there was one place you could send a hypocrite, where would it be? You'd send them to church. I mean, it's like that's where people with problems should come. And not just that, but it's all of us, right? I mean, do any of us walk into the church? It's like uh, I've had a friend say, if you ever found a perfect church, don't go there because when you get there, you will mess it up. And so that's one of, the, one of the reasons that the body of Christ and that the church should be the most loving, gracious place for people with problems is because coming to Christ, becoming a Christian, starts with recognizing that we all have problems. And so this Corinthian church, the fact that all the stuff that Paul talks about is going on, that is not a shock. It is tragic. We wish it wasn't happening, like when we read about things like this. But what a great place for these people to go and together in an environment with God's word and God's wisdom to grow in becoming who God intends them to be. So we're going to read through a passage today. I want to look at a few biblical examples of conflict so that we can think a little bit about what drives conflict and then I want to end by just thinking through, as we see conflict and as we experience conflict, what does God expect from us as believers? And uh, so let's read this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 is where we'll start. And uh, Paul has just complimented the Corinthians at the beginning of chapter eight, he's complimented them because he says, hey, you, you are holding to these traditions. You are serious about God's word. You are following my example. And as many problems as the Corinthian church had, uh, the apostle Paul, when he gave them instructions, they did the things that he said. And so right after he compliments them and then gives them some instructions, he says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, and that's worship, when they come together for worship to celebrate the Lord's Supper, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then I want to read the next section. Those are the verses we're going to cover today. But I want to read the rest of what he's talking about here because he then points out the very thing that brings unity, which is what they were celebrating. And he talks more about that. So let's look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I would just say 
that Paul points this out, and he's talking about celebrating the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. But then he tells them, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it's because they cannot behave the way that they are behaving if they are thinking about who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. Those are incompatible things. And then he goes on in verse 27, and he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. You know, the reason I wanted to read that whole passage is that we're going to end today talking about how do we think about brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. And part of it is that in life, we are to consider other people's interests and other people's needs as more important than our own. And it is important when we see people, and it is about division, it is about how people approach the Lord's Supper, that is something that is of a critical nature. But it's not just that, right? In the Bible, God has called us to be involved in one another's lives in regard to sin. When we see somebody struggling, when we see somebody headed down a road that brings destruction, we are to, in a loving, gracious way, speak up. We are to step into people's lives. We are to be involved in helping and encouraging. And what is so sad is that so often as people in the body of Christ, this is a huge problem in families, it is a huge problem in churches, is that when we see people in sin, we are unwilling to risk the personal discomfort of addressing that. We would much rather smile, wave, and see somebody walk off a cliff than to lovingly come alongside and say, brother, sister, what you're doing is wrong. And in a not in a judgmental, prideful, arrogant way. God has called us to be involved in one another's lives. Uh, by the way, the, the new members class um, that we're doing, that's one of the reasons that people should become members is because each of us should be signing up for that. Um, I'll just tell you what I want. I start walking off a cliff. I hope there are people who love me enough to speak into my life. Uh, I hope if Michelle walks off a cliff someday that I'm not the only one speaking into her life, that other people that know her and love her care enough to get involved. One of the things that I've seen that is terribly tragic is you will see people who disconnect themselves for the fellow, from fellowship, from being plugged into church. They disconnect themselves and their life blows up. And when that happens, they say, where are all the people to encourage me and help me? And it's like, actually, today you want help, but about two years ago, you decided to remove all the help that God intended you to have. So as the body of Christ, we need to read these things, we need to think about them, we need to take them seriously. So let's talk briefly about this passage. What is going on here in 1 Corinthians 11, um, let's look at verse 17 and 18, the presence of divisions. The presence of divisions. Do you know that the presence of divisions invalidates worship? Hey, this is one of the reasons that we need to read the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? When you, like, like last week, I was talking about that God hears anybody's prayer, but there is a group of people that God does not hear their prayer. And that's, uh, um, I, um, 
I just forgot the reference. Psalm 66, 18, I just remembered it. But it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. When you read the book of Amos, those musicians, they were amazing. They were talented. They were doing all their sacrifices. And when they did their sacrifices, God says, I don't accept your sacrifices. When they were singing and worshiping, they said, oh, we're like David. And God says, take away the, the noise and the, and the gonging of your symbols and your worship. I hate your festivals. Now, if you walked into the room, you'd think, oh my goodness, that is amazing. That's wonderful. This is, this is the best worship music I've ever heard. But God says, I hate it. Get it away from me. Why? Because they're living a life of a lack of love and division and they're abusing and they're taking advantage of people. And so what we need to recognize is that sin invalidates worship. There are people who show up on Sunday and they think I did all these bad things, but I'm a good person. And you know, religious duties are invalidated by sin. And here in this passage specifically, Paul is telling them, you are gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper and it is invalidated. Look what it says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's a contrast. He says, actually, for you, coming to church, instead of being the blessing, the encouragement, the building up of the body of Christ that it's supposed to be, edification, uh, church is a good thing. All of us should go. It's this huge benefit in our life. But he says, for you, when you go to church, it doesn't help you, it hurts you. It doesn't make you better, it makes you worse. And then at the end of the thing, he's like, instead of being spiritually built up, you are sick, you are ill, and God is killing you because of the sin that you bring in to worship because you defile the body and blood of the Lord. And so he's just telling them, this is not good, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And so these are people who, they have divisions. You know what Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says? Matthew 5, 23, Jesus says this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. You ever think about that? Jesus says no. You ever see people that have conflicts? They have divisions. And when, there's, when, when, when reconciliation is sought, their answer is no, I won't go. You know, I had a person that was very close to me in my life. It was in my family and we were having this conflict and we could not resolve it. It was just difficult, there was a lot of conflict. And this person in my family said they were a believer. And so I just said to them, we're having this unresolved conflict and we need help, we need accountability from the outside, we need a different perspective. I see things one way and you see things another. And so I said to them, pick any pastor in any church that you want and I will go, we will go. And so what they did is they found a pastor that they could tell their side of the story to, make sure they prepped that before we went and met. And so they got everything in order, and they said, okay, come meet with this pastor. And so we went, and so we went, and we met, and we talked about everything, we were honest about everything, and then that pastor said, I think you should do this, this, and this. And I remember telling him, he asked me to do some things. And I remember telling him, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's, that's going to lead to where things will go. I explained why. And then he said, you know what? That's what I want you to do. And so you want to know what I did? I did exactly what he asked me to do, wholeheartedly. And it's like, I didn't think that was going to be good, but I'm just like, okay. If this is what you want me to do, then that's what I will do. And so then we went and we did that. We were in submission to the leaders that God gave. 
And, and you know what? We told them, pick anybody you want and we'll go. Could you imagine uh, picking a counselor? And this happens often. People go to marriage counseling to get help. And then when they go to marriage counseling, the marriage counselor gives them advice and they don't take it. And you kind of think to yourself, if, if you didn't need help, why'd you ask for help? And that was one of the things I thought about is if my perspective was completely right, I guess we wouldn't be needing help. So it was good to have someone else. So we did everything, and guess what? After we did everything we were supposed to do, the person that was going with us, when it became their turn, said, well, we're not going anymore. Um, that says something about a heart of a person when they refuse to gather, and God says, that if you are a believer and if it is your desire to please the Lord before you make your offering, go be reconciled. That's an important thing. And so there's this division and they're being torn apart by jealousy and strife and they're coming together as a church. And uh, God's very clear in this. This is what he says too about the whole thing of divisions. Uh, Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Um, hey, <laughs> it should be easy to forgive anybody. Well, for anything. That's what I was about to say. But... <laughs> I have to say, that is not always easy, is it? I mean, it's hard. When we feel wrong, people hurt us. Man, that can be deep. But one of the, I'll just tell you what makes it hard to forgive people is that other people's sin against us always seems so much worse than our sin against others. And if we really saw our sin against God accurately, we would recognize that God's forgiveness of us is so much more significant than anything anybody has ever done to us. Um, our sin against God is infinite because he is infinitely holy and God deserves no one to sin against him. Um, the truth is, for us, we're not perfect. And in, to some degree, when we sin against other people, Probably in many ways, we've done the same types of things. And so division is something that it, it, we don't just base our approach to division and conflict and difficulty on our perspective. We base how we approach things in life on the things that God has said we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to approach things. And we just, we read verses and we just say, is this what God tells me to do? Okay, I'm going to do it. And we obey what God says. So this is the second thing that we're going to see here. And this is kind of shocking. Like, who would think to themselves, um, God has a purpose for divisions in the church? I mean, if we could push a button and get rid of divisions in the church, that's what we would do, right? Um, and, and what's this whole idea that God allows divisions? I was thinking about this when we're talking about prophecy and when um, God says that if a prophet comes to you and tells you to go away from me, and then he, or to violate something I've said in scripture, and then he does a real miracle, he says, don't listen to that prophet. You just say to yourself, God, you are in control of who does miracles. Why would you let somebody, why would you let a false teacher do miracles? And God says in about prophecy, it's because I'm testing you. I'm actually gonna see, are you willing to obey the things that I've told you? God allows opportunities and tests in our lives. And so that's why he allows false prophets. And what we're gonna find out here is that divisions happen in the church and it is never what God wants. It, it, God's never trying to get somebody to be divisive, but God allows divisions for his purpose, and this is what he says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be reconciled. You know, um, there's probably no greater test, as I think about it, there's no greater test to the genuineness of a person's faith 
to a person's spiritual condition than how they respond to people who wrong them, who they perceive as wronging them. Um, When we feel deeply hurt and justified in in hating people and being bitter toward people and being angry toward people, it is so hard to read those verses. Uh, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Return good for evil so that you will be like your heavenly father. Like, think about that. Somebody's committed evil against you. Um, You know, I I just think about, uh, have you ever heard that phrase, um, I can love you, but I don't have to like you. Anybody ever said that? You know, that's not true. Uh, We need to love people from the heart. And and the whole thing is, I love you, but I don't like you. That's an excuse. It is a rationalization. You know, in your heart, bless and do not curse. Have have you ever been really hurt by somebody? And then when you hear something goes bad in their life, you feel happy? Well, that's God's discipline. They deserve that. Um, you know, Proverbs actually says, uh, when, you're, when, when you see your, your enemy stumble, don't rejoice. Because God may see that attitude of rejoicing in your heart and remove his hand of discipline. You ever thought about that? It's like if you rejoice when somebody else suffers who's wronged you, God may remove that discipline just because he doesn't like your attitude. We are too blessed. Have you ever been around people that if somebody's complimented, it makes them angry? I I was at a family gathering and somebody walks up to this family member and says, hey, can you talk to my kid? My kid really appreciates you. My kid really loves you. Will you talk to them? And there was somebody else that heard that that was very jealous about this other person. By the way, not me. But... (laughs) I wasn't jealous, and I also wasn't the one that was so influential and valuable. But you want to know something? That person was so angry, and they were so furious that somebody said something nice about someone else. When that happens, when, when you see somebody, and you see the evil that is in that person, and other per- people compliment them, and other people like them, and you are so upset because you want to see them, you, you want other people to know what a bad person they are too. Um, that is exactly the opposite of what God calls us to as believers. The Bible says this in Galatians, now the works of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now look at this, enmities, strife, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, and divisions. Uh, those, are, those are things that are the deeds of the flesh. And you know what? As believers, we ought to be able to see those things. And here's the deal. Sometimes when we see that in other people, we don't see it for what it is because it's in us. We hate people. And so when the people around us also hate people, it's like, well, that's okay. We all hate people. But when we're addressing that in our own life, when we see that for what it is, it gives us a sense of urgency to rescue people who are trapped, who who are dominated by, by Satan to do his will. And Titus talks about this, uh, the, in, in the priority of the church addressing this. It says, as for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. You know, the Bible tells us that as the body of Christ, when we see division, when we see that kind of thing, God calls us to step in, to be involved in it, and to separate ourselves from it. Um, That's a serious thing that God calls us to do. The Bible tells us in the sense of highlighting those who are genuine. You want to know what genuine is? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 10 tells us that. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know if we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. If you go down to verse 9 and 10, whoever says 
he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. And then this verse, this has been like a a family verse for us. I remember going into John and Jackson's room when they were kids. And John and Jackson had so much conflict. Um, When they were like uh, four, five, six years old, um, our little son Jackson was so energetic and he had such great intuition. And whenever he was irritating people, he knew exactly what he was doing. He could push people's buttons like nobody else. And John's buttons were super easy to push. And so like they're these little kids, they're, they're at that age, they're having so much conflict. And w- that was one of the things we took so seriously is that we are, how do we help our kids love each other? And John, I can't remember exactly, he was age probably eight, nine or 10, something like that. But he was just saying, um, he, he just said, dad, I hate Jackson. I hate him. And I would say, uh, John, God calls you to love your brother. And we would talk about that. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, but I hate him. <laughs> and so um, I read this verse to him, and I just said, John, and one of the things I really loved about John is that he would never just say things. Like, he has this quirk in his personality where he's willing to tell the truth, and if it meant he got punished, it didn't matter. He'd still, I'd say, you'd say you love your brother or you're grounded for a month. He'd say, okay, well, ground me for a month because I hate that kid. Um, like, John wouldn't say things to get out of trouble. Now, Jackson, on the other hand, what do I have to say to go out and play? Okay, I'll say it. He didn't care at all about whether or not it was true um, the, the, when they were kids. Now they, you know. But uh, I read this verse to John. I just said, hey, John, are you a Christian? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, like, what makes you think you're a believer? And so he talked to me about, just kind of repeated the gospel to me. And I, and I just read this verse. And I said, so, John, um, as a Christian, you love God, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, if you say you love God and you say you hate Jackson, those two things cannot, cannot actually be true. So either you're not a Christian or you don't hate Jackson, um, but you need to kind of think about what this says because that's not my opinion. This is actually what God says. And uh, it was funny because it took John three days and he was praying about it and he was thinking about it and he finally comes back and he goes, Dad, I realize that I don't hate Jackson. And, um, and you want to know something? In that day, we saw a change in John's behavior and his attitude toward Jackson. It's not like he just said that word and then they kept having the same conflict. Like he really wrestled through and I think he was a believer at that age because I think he wrestled through that and he thought about, okay, what is God calling me to do and how should that actually impact the way I live? And our kids to this day, they love each other. They don't hate each other. And that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges, right? So God brings to the surface through conflicts who's genuine. When you have people that are willing to hate somebody, people who are willing to slander, um, our relationships say more about us than they do actually about other people. It says more about our relationship with God than it says about other people. And uh, so let's look at the third thing that we see here. Human causes of division. It says this, you know, I'll just tell you right now, and this should be pretty simple. This is really clear in the rest of this chapter. You want to know what causes division between people? It's simple. Uh, Between believers. Let's take unbelievers out. What causes division, unresolved division with believers? It is a lack of reverence for God. When we take seriously who God is, when we take seriously the things that God says about life, that results in unity. And that doesn't mean that everybody always agrees or that everybody sees things the same way or even that there aren't times that people need to go separate ways. We're going to look at that in a moment. There are times that people go separate ways, but there is po- it is possible to say, hey, I can't work with you in this, but to still love and appreciate and have unity. But when there is sinful flesh, division, slander. That comes only 
from a lack of reverence for God. And as a body of Christ, we need to understand that. So let's look at this. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That worship is polluted. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? It is despising the church of God to mistreat people in the Lord's Supper. How do you celebrate the Lord's Supper as they were doing and mistreat people? This, this was an issue of rich people getting together and eating and humiliating the poor. And it's like it, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. They just eat and there's somebody else there. There's nothing left for them. How do you do that if you're celebrating the Lord's Supper? When we behave like that, we are not celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, religious actions, instead of blessing them, brought judgment on them. You know, Proverbs 14, 31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. He who is generous to the needy honors him. You know, Matthew 25, 40 and, and verse 45, God's judging people and he says, in the things that you did for the least of these, you did for me. The things that you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. And uh, Luke 17, 1 says, he says to his di uh, disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Like, think about those poor people that are gathering for church. And, and, and we think about, okay, yeah, they were sinned against. They ate food without them. How would you feel if you showed up and you were left out? Like, that's a legitimate sin against somebody. If you were humiliated in, a, in, in your worship, like, that would be like a legitimate sin that's happening against these people. And potentially, the temptation then for bitterness toward another I want to look at some examples of biblical conflict. You know, unity is, is very important for us in the body of Christ. And this is something that certainly should be expressed amongst believers. But the truth is, these attitudes should work their way out with the guy dri driving down the street that gives you sign language. Um, we, we should, as believers, be characterized by love for others. So let's talk about um, Cain and Abel. So um, Cain and Abel, I don't know if you guys know this story. Well, probably everybody does. But let me give you a quick story of Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel are doing sacrifices. We don't have a description in the Bible of instructions about sacrifices. Those don't come till later. But Cain and Abel are making sacrifices, and the Bible tells us that God accepts Abel's sacrifice but does not accept Cain's sacrifice. And so Cain gets mad. And uh, there was this adult Sunday school where they were talking about the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. And uh, one of the persons uh, says, Abel should not have, have uh, exasperated Cain. <laughs> like they blamed Abel for this conflict between Cain and Abel. And uh, so Abel's just honoring the Lord. He's doing what God has said, and Cain is not. And God himself confronts Cain. And he just says, Cain, you're really mad. Um, why are you being mad? If you just do what's right, you won't be mad. You ever seen conflicts with people, and you've thought to yourself, hey, there's a conflict. Uh, there must be guilt on both sides. You ever thought that? You know, that is often true. Uh, I think about <laughs> the conflicts that, that I have in my house with my kids, with Michelle, and I would say with my kids growing up, I would say the conflicts we had were not always me being a part of that. Sometimes that was me confronting my kids' sin and they didn't like it. Um, other times, even though that's where it started, it then transitioned to where I was not innocent and now I got things I got to go back to my own kids and I got to own up to and apologize for. But this whole idea that if somebody's mad, then somebody must have done something, you know, that is not true. And Cain is an example of that. He actually kills somebody because of his own sin. Um, and we all know uh, there, there are some people that if you confront them, they will hate you for life. 
And so what do people do? They treat everyone with kick gloves. Nobody ever speaks to them. Nobody ever confronts them because if you do, you suffer. And Cain kills his brother. 1 John 3.10 says, this is the evidence of those who are children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were good. Um, how about another example of conflict? Um, you got Moses, right? Moses in Egypt, and he's leading the people of Israel. Now, Moses was a flawed person. Um, he murdered somebody. <laughs> Did you guys know that? Like, he's in Egypt. There's this guy beating this, serv this servant, and Moses kills the guy, flees for 40 years. So we're not looking at Moses and saying he's perfect. But the other thing I want to say is, there's nobody else that I can think of that compares to Moses. So I'm gonna read this story and I'm gonna point some things out. But I just want you to know, our elders are not Moses. And I am not Moses. And God makes that point in this story. So this is what happens. So Moses is leading the people of Israel. By the way, 10 times Israel rebels against Moses. He is a faithful leader. He is honoring the Lord. And he brings them out of Egypt. And right before they're, right as they're about to cross the Red Sea, everybody's saying, let's kill Moses. Moses, you're terrible. Why'd you do this to us? And throughout their wandering in the wilderness, every time Moses is honoring God and doing the right thing, the people are saying, we hate him. And we should go back to Egypt. And let's kill Moses and find a new leader. And I'm just gonna tell you, um, it's hard to find a leader better than Moses. Let me read you this story. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he married. And there's a, there's a debate about whether this Cushite woman was, was black. And so, uh, and often the way that this is described, people say, yeah, Moses did that, and they were mad at that. And then it goes on and it says, and they said, the Lord, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? So now we're seeing like this jealousy, right? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And then it says, now the man Moses was meek more than any people who were on the face of the earth. So is it Moses' fault? <laughs> no, he's more humble than any person on earth. Now this is the thing that's kind of weird to me, is Moses wrote this. This is one of the books of Moses. So Moses wrote of himself, I am the most meek person on the earth. Only the humblest person on earth could actually write that and still be humble. And then it says, suddenly the Lord came and he said, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And they came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. And then here's where God says, but Moses is different than everyone else on earth. So nobody should put themselves in Moses' place. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And behold, he beholds the form of the Lord. Why were you then not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and she was leprous. And Aaron said to, to Moses, Oh, my Lord, don't punish us. We have done foolishly. We've sinned. Let her, let her not be as one of the dead ones whose flesh is half eaten when he comes out of the mother's womb. And then listen, this is the point I want to make. So Moses is being attacked. What is Moses' response? And by the way, this is Moses' response throughout the Exodus, when, when Israel is constantly complaining and, and just being a jerk to him and, and, and just causing him so much grief. And God says, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. They're so sinful. And Moses always prays for their well-being. But look what he does here. This is bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And I would just say for all of us, if this is how Moses is, 
This is how we all should be. And, and so Moses cried to the Lord and says, oh God, please heal her, please. And then God says, um, if her father spit in her face, I won't get into the details of that, she'd be shamed for seven days. Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp for seven days, and I want you to hear this. And the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set out. So God's taking two million people somewhere. And when Miriam gets thrown out, because of what you've done, you need to go outside, and sometimes that happens. But you know, there's not an attitude of hatred toward her. Moses is saying, please heal her. The whole of Israel is not, they're not saying, well, we're gonna go on ahead. Hey, Miriam, catch up. They, two million people wait for her because they love her. And that's the thing is that we love people in the body of Christ. Now, in, in number 16, the sons of Korah, you'd think they'd learn from that. They don't. They all get together, rebel against Moses. And in that case, God, God just has the ground open up. They fall in and it covers them up. So they don't get off as well as Miriam does. Okay, I want to point out two more. How about Paul and Barnabas? Acts chapter 15. So in Acts chapter 15, you got the story of Paul and Barnabas, and um, they're on a missions trip. They take uh, John Mark with them, and John Mark bails. So he's on this trip, he quits, and he goes home. And the next time they're going out on a missions trip, um, Paul wants to go, and Barnabas is going to go, and Barnabas says, let's bring Mark. And what does Paul say? No way. He is not coming. Now, this is the thing I think about. This story is interesting. And it's interesting because we don't get a commentary. On so many conflicts, we actually get explanations. We don't get explanations here. We just have that there's this conflict. In fact, it says a sharp disagreement arose. And it's like, as I think about it, I can think about biblical arguments that either one could make. I could see Paul. He's writing about deacons and he says, let them first serve. And after they have been shown, let them first be tested. And after they've been found faithful, let them serve. And for him to say, we're preaching the gospel. The people that we're preaching to, if they become Christians, they may be executed. And Paul's this example, right? He goes, he preaches. If he's beaten, no matter what happens. And he's like, how can, can I go preach the message of following Christ? And how can we take people to preach the message of following Christ who just abandon things? When the going gets hard, they bail. So he can't come because he is not an example of the message that we are preaching. I love, I love Mark. I'm thankful for Mark. But he's not qualified to serve in this position. Like I could see Paul making that argument. And I could see Barnabas saying, Paul, Everybody struggles. The guy had a hard time. He failed. Hey, you failed a lot. I failed a lot. And we need to be gracious and forgive him. We need to take him with us again. That was a weak moment. That doesn't define him. And so you could see a biblical argument on both sides of that. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us who was right, who was wrong. But here's the thing that we do find out is that they have a sharp disagreement and they part ways. But they both go on a missions trip. And one of the things that we find out is that this wasn't personal. I don't think it was personal. You know, in 2 Timothy, when Paul's at the end of his life, he says, hey, send me Mark. He's useful to me. And so I don't know if that was an attitude change in Paul. I don't know what happened there, but there's a conflict. And we'll close with this final one, Eudia and Sintichi. Eudia and Sintichi, these two ladies having conflict in the church. Sometimes... When people have conflict, and the way that they go about conflict demonstrates the non-reality of their faith. Other times, people have conflict, and it's an expression of our struggles with sin. And often, as human beings looking on, we can't tell which one's which. God knows, but we can't tell. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They're struggling. And he says, as believers, agree. Your Christianity is more significant than any of the issues that you are going through. Agree. And they obviously can't agree. And so he says, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side and share in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellows worker, fellow workers whose names are involved, are written in the, in the, in the book of life. So sometimes uh, the body of Christ needs to help. And there are all kinds of ways that the body of Christ helps. Uh, God's given us leaders. When I was having a conflict I couldn't resolve, I went to somebody in a position of spiritual authority, um, and I willingly placed myself under their authority. They were not at my church. They were not my elders, but they were believers. They were leaders in a church, and I went and said, okay, and I put myself under their authority. And often, God gives us leaders and authorities to help. But it is not just leaders and authorities that help. It is the whole body of Christ that is supposed to come alongside, graciously and gently love, and be involved in addressing sin where we see it. That is what God calls us to do. And as we do that, um, I think about a couple things. Here's the first thing every single person should do. They should pray. When we see these things, we should take them seriously. We should pray wholeheartedly for them. The second thing is we need to know when to get involved and when not to get involved. Uh, there's a proverb, it's Proverbs 26, 17. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. You know, that's just saying, don't grab a dog by the ears, he might bite you. And sometimes we get ourselves involved in things that we shouldn't be involved in. Um, but I would just say this, uh, there, are, there are often times that people get involved in the wrong ways and they don't get involved in the right ways. Um, Proverbs 27, 7, 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Often we see sin in somebody's life who's close to us and we just don't want to mess with it. We don't want trouble. So we just ignore it. Uh, we're just kind of polite. Instead of saying, this is a brother or sister in Christ who is in trouble and being willing to step in and speak to what's happening. The whole body of Christ should do that. Um, Proverbs uh, 29.1 says, he who is often reproved and yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. One of the things I find is sometimes the people who need the most help don't get help. People that are easy to go to, people go to them. People that are hard to go to, nobody goes to them. And as believers, we need to love other people more than we love ourselves. And so we pray, we get involved when we should. You know, I remember a time somebody came and said, hey, there's this guy in your church and he's a leader, and I saw him kissing somebody at work that he's not married to. And um, when they said that, I said, did you talk to him? No. I said, well, you need to talk to him. But you want to know what else I did? I went and called that guy. And I said, hey, I heard from this person. And you want to know what I didn't do? I didn't keep things a secret. As believers, we speak the truth in love. And I just said, hey, this person said they saw you kissing somebody at work that you're not married to. Did that happen? And I'm concerned for his well-being. I'm concerned for his marriage. Uh, this guy was married and he had kids. And I care about that. And I'm not going to just go, hey, none of my business. You step into that, everybody hates you. That is not what Christians do. And so I went and I got involved. And if, and if the person says, that never happened, I go get the person who said they saw it. And I say, come here. And I say, you said you saw this. And you sit together and you figure out what really happened. Sometimes people make honest mistakes. Sometimes people intentionally slander. 
And in the body of Christ, we need to be involved. Um, one time, I was in college, and I was a leader in my college. And uh, my college had this, um, it was not a secular school, it was a Christian school, and we had this rule that you were not allowed to do public displays of affection. So I'm dating Michelle, and according to the handbook, we're only allowed to occasionally handhold. Now, I was kind of glad because I realized you could full-on handhold, but you just can't do it all the time. It needs to be occasional. So, um, so this, this, this rumor starts going around the school, and, and one of my leaders comes to me and goes, Roger, you're a leader in the school, and you are publicly making out with Michelle. And, you know, that is just a really bad example. And Michelle and I have been dating for three months, and in three months, we had never kissed. Like, purity was an important thing for us. We hadn't even ever kissed. And so I just said to this guy, I said, well, that's interesting. I've never even kissed Michelle. And I certainly have not been making out with her publicly. Where'd you hear that? And so he lists another person who's high up in the leadership of the school. So I went to that person and I said, hey, I heard that you told this person that I was making out with Michelle. Like, why'd you say that? And she said, well, one of the leaders on my staff told me that they saw you. And I said, okay, well, what was her name? <laughs> and then I walked across to the next dorm, and I said to that person, hey, I heard that you told this person that I was making out with Michelle. And she says, yeah, I saw you making out with Michelle. I said, really? Where did that happen, and when did that happen? And she goes, well, Sunday morning, about 10.30, you were standing right over there by the stairs where you and Michelle always stand, and you guys were making out. And I just said, well, I don't know how you're mis what kind of misunderstanding is happening, but you do know that I work for a church and that I'm at a pastor and that I was a part-time pastor and that at 10 o'clock in the morning I was preaching a sermon at my church in front of a room full of junior high students. So I don't know what you saw, but that couldn't have been me. And she goes, oh, you know, I've seen you guys standing over there. I just assumed it was you. You know, often in, in situations like that, here's the deal. If I was breaking a rule, if I was doing something that shouldn't have been done, um, for people to come alongside and say, hey, Roger, what are you doing? And to step into my life is a blessing, that is an encouragement, that is something I should be thankful for. And sometimes there's misunderstandings. Now, you wanna know what would have cleared all that up? If she saw that and she would have come to me and she would have said, hey, Roger, this is what I saw and this is what happened. We could have had that conversation and it wouldn't have gone through this whole chain of people. But can I just tell you something? I wasn't mad at the person who confronted me. I was thankful. And when we hear things about people that cause us concern, we don't need to run around and repeat everything. We shouldn't do that. But when we hear things about people that cause concern, where we're concerned for their well-being, we're concerned if they're doing the right things, we should ask. And we should be a part of helping the body of Christ be unified. And if there are people having a silly conflict and they can't resolve it, the whole body of Christ should be involved in helping that happen. And I hear so many people say, I don't want to take sides. You want to know what I think about taking sides? You should be on everybody's side. And to take sides is not necessarily to say who's right or wrong, but also taking sides sometimes to be on a person's side. Just so you know, I didn't take sides John against Jackson. I was on John's side. That's why I said and did the things I said to him. Because when we're on people's sides, that doesn't mean that, that means we get involved to do what is in people's spiritual best interests. And for us to be a church that is faithful and effective and a place that sin should not be a bad thing. When people struggle in sin, everyone needs help. We can't be a church that is hard on people, but we also can't be a church that is not helping one another grow toward godliness. And I'm just gonna tell you guys, this is something that is not just for our church now. This is all the time. These kinds of things happen everywhere. They are happening now. They have happened in the past, and they will happen in the future. And so that's, like, that's not like this abnormal thing. 
but we need to be a people that are faithful, and we don't want people in our church happening what is happening in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where you have people weak and ill and dead because they disregard and they have a lack of reverence for God. And it's not most important for us to be able to identify that in other people's lives. It is most important for us to be able to identify it in our lives. One of the things I like is whenever anybody sins against me, I always think, what are ways that I have done that to someone else? And I think about that because often you see things more clearly in someone else than you see it in yourself. And so as a body of Christ, let's genuinely love people. And sometimes that means taking a hard stand. Sometimes that means speaking up. Sometimes that just means praying. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for the guidance and direction that is in it. And God, I pray that this church would be a unified church, Lord, that we would love people, that we would not be hard on people, and also that we wouldn't just sit and wave as we see people walk off a cliff. We ask for your blessing and help in your name. Amen.